Okay, so Chad's a one. Yes. And one of the things that I suggest that people can do to help ones with their voices Mm -hmm. is at the end of the day, sit for 30 minutes with them Mm. and listen to them talk about their day. And I say to other people, don't, you can ask questions, but don't make statements and, and kind of let them work through what happened in the day and they'll be able to let go of whatever the voices told them about the day. So the fact that you intuitively do that with Chad, I think is a thing we shouldn't miss in terms of ones and sixes being in relationship with one another. Mm. I also think that because you ask questions, Mm -hmm. it makes some numbers uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So do you know what numbers that is? I mean, I've got an idea, but I'd like to hear what you think first. Who seems to get uncomfortable when you ask questions? Welcome, everybody, to episode 94 of the Enneagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. The clip you just heard is actually from episode 21, where Suzanne talked with Heather Mustaine, Enneagram 6, for the Path Between Us series. Heather is married to the aforementioned Chad, and he is the guest today. Enneagram 1, Chad Mustaine is going to tell us about intentionality. We're going to hear a lot about the relationship between he and Heather as a 1 and a 6 traditional versus non-traditional family systems and roles. We're going to hear about non-productive thinking, and let's hear the difference between inner critic Chad and vacation Chad. Before we get to Chad and Suzanne, first I'm going to tell you about LTM All Day. It's going to be an all-day fundraiser at the Micah Center in Dallas, but it's going to be streamed on the Life in the Trinity Ministry Facebook page for free. So either purchase a ticket and join us there in the building, And if you can't, join us for free online. It's a fundraiser, so there'll be a donate button. Don't worry. We're going to have 12 hours of teaching and music and hopefully some fun. The Reverend Joseph Stabile is going to talk about spiritual practices and lead us and instruct us in different spiritual disciplines. Of course, Suzanne is going to be there talking about the Enneagram and relationships. Uh, We're going to have an Enneagram Journey podcast interview live with Enneagram 3, Sean Palmer, the author of the recently released book, 40 Days on Being a Three, part of the Enneagram Daily Reflection Series by InterVarsity Press. We're going to have great music from some friends from Highland Park UMC and Custer Road UMC. Joey and Billy Shuey are going to be talking about the Enneagram and parenting, both from the parents' perspective and from the children's perspective. Uh, Whitney Russell is going to be talking about food and body image in the Enneagram. And we're going to have our friends from 1128 Ministry there to teach us on spiritual direction. So again, that's going to be November 7th all day, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Central Time. Join us at the Micah Center or join us for free on the LTM Facebook page. You can find the link for it in the info for this podcast. Also visit lifeinthetrinityministry.com and you'll find links for it there. I know you're going to enjoy episode 94 with Chad and Suzanne. And when you get done listening to that, go back to episode 21 with Heather and give it a listen. Oh, we're in it. All right. We're with. He always starts early. It it goes well when we're just having a conversation and people come in to what's already happening and yeah, they know we didn't leave something out. Yep. So I I am always fascinated by Reverend Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> not to give him a couple more pats on the back, Corey. Yeah. Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor Chad Mustaine. Talk about the reverend mm-hmm. and talk about the doctor. And uh, before you do that, let's talk about the fact that we just reminisced that the last time you were here at the Micah Center was in... I think 2012. It's my last year of seminary. Yeah. So either 2012 or 2013. Yeah. Good, good, a good time right here. Yeah. A good time was had right here. I like it anytime anybody's back after mm-hmm. a time away. All right, so the reverend and the doctor, tell me about that. Yeah, man. Reverend is something I've known probably about myself since early childhood, Um, but it has evolved and changed uh, throughout my life. One of my earliest memories is as a kid, like five, six years old, like going forward at a church missions conference saying, like, I'm accepting the call to, like, world missions. And, I mean, I... I embraced that and lived into that in my childhood and that 
affected so much of who I was early on. Uh, did a lot of mission trips and middle school and high school. And then in high school, uh, I'd always had a love for music. I come from a musical family. Uh, started doing some worship leading and then kind of stepped into this new season where I was leading worship and youth group. And then for college ministry, started leading worship at the church, was in a band, got to do some traveling and thought, man, worship leading is it. I'm, I want to be the next big worship leader and had people saying that could be it, you know. And then through that process, got connected with a missions organization uh, over in the Atlanta, Georgia area and kind of would tap back into this missions thing again. And then served overseas for a couple of years. I lived in Manchester, England. That's how I met my spouse, Heather, working for this organization. She was serving in Jeffreys Bay, South Africa, and I was serving in Manchester, England. We met a couple of weeks' time, pretty much fell in love, figured out this was it, and then lived for the next like eight months on separate continents. Uh, not your average dating story. <laughs> but through all that, navigating as we we're getting to know each other, what does it look like? We both felt this call to ministry. What is that going to be? So where we first met you, uh, and was exposed to the Enneagram was at Baylor when we were in seminary. Um, and I was locked in. I was going to be the missions pastor. She was going to be a social worker. And about midway through, uh, a mentor and friend, uh, Bert Burleson, mm -hmm. there said, you know, I think you need to look into this hospital chaplain thing. I think you've got, you spent a lot of time as a resident chaplain in the hospital visiting students. I mm -hmm. think you need to look into this. I think that might be an area where you've got some giftedness and calling. And it was something I didn't see in myself but it took someone I, I trusted and that had a lot of wisdom and experience kind of speaking into me. And so about midway through seminary, I enrolled in my first unit of CPE, kind of found a, another aspect of my, my calling and giftedness in the hospital setting and really began to settle in. I think this might be a new direction. So it mm -hmm. shifted again. Um, and Heather began to feel some calling towards missions and perhaps being a missions pastor. And so it shifted. Um, we attended First Baptist Church Waco, um, there in Waco, um, our last two years of seminary, and that's where we began exploring uh, ordination with them. And we went through our own separate ordination processes, but then we're in an ordination service together, which was really unique and special uh, to both be approved separately for ordination and then to have a joint uh, ordination service on my 30th birthday, nice. uh, which was kind of cool. Um, and so that's kind of the the reverend part, and then we landed up here in Dallas and Heather works at a, a local church as uh, an associate pastor with an evolving title. Uh, and I'm a full-time uh, hospital chaplain here in the Dallas area. So that's the, the reverend part. The doctor part is I just love to learn. Yeah. I love being in school. I don't like paying for it, but I love being in school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so coming out of seminary, uh, before you can start most doctor of ministry programs, they want you to have three years of work experience. So I was working in the hospital setting and then applied to a program at uh, Bright Divinity School at TCU and entered in thinking I was, uh, you know, like a lot of people, going to save the world and my ministry project was going to change everything. Um, but it was in one of my classes about midway through, uh, one of my professors, Dr. Jaretta Marshall, and some of my classmates asked me this really important question. And they said, who is the patient population in the hospital setting you feel you have the most to learn from? And that just really kind of shook me. And I spent a lot of time digesting that. And for me, uh, I had a passion to be an ally with the LGBTQ community. Um, but for me, the, the patient population I determined I had the most to learn from was people who identify as transgender. Um, and so I created a ministry project around learning from the experiences of people who are trans, uh, their experiences with spirituality and healthcare settings um, and how that kind of how chaplains hurt or hindered their spiritual journeys. What was it like being in the hospital? So I created a ministry project around that and did some interviews, uh, a small kind of qualitative study uh, with people who identify as transgender and uh, just a life-changing process for me. Yeah. Wrote, wrote up my project and it uh, was approved over the summer and I defended via zoom because that's just the time period we're yeah, in, which weird. was a bit disappointing, but kind of how it went. Mm -hmm. So I was in my uh, office at work and defended and was successful. Um, and so now technically I'm the Reverend doctor, which working in a hospital, I don't get to use. I know that's why I'm using title. it. So you get to <laughs> doctor. Um, uh, there's a few staff members that like to call me Dr. Chad for fun. 
but you know the titles aren't really that important. It just is representative of this lifelong desire of learning. Sure. I think the love for it. The first episode that we have someone come on and they correct you saying actually it's doctor. I think that's when we'll stop. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> there so you I go. hope I never have so to do that. So great answer. Yeah. Well, you know, when you when you wrap it up during COVID, it feels like somebody ought to bring it up so right. that you get to talk about it and, you know. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I think it did you think it was interesting that you were bummed that it was via Zoom that you had to defend it? That's two questions, I guess. As Do an Enneagram question. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, oh, man, via Zoom. I bet people are like, yes. But Enneagram 1 here, not thrilled that it was via Zoom. Yeah, I didn't. You know, my so much of my work is being in a space and being able to connect yep. with people. Um, and so it just felt re- really disconnected, even mm-hmm. though I knew my uh, committee I was defending you know, with, and it was a really great conversation, really fruitful and, uh, enjoyed it in so many ways, but yeah, just being alone in a, yeah, my office just was weird. And I didn't, it almost feels to me sometimes like when I get off of a zoom meeting, if it was important, like did that just happen? Mm. Felt a little TV ish, you know, it's like, yeah. yeah. And I also think when you're in school and you're preparing for something and you're looking towards something when it's not that, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a doctoral program and particularly I would think if you're working on a project that is that unique, you kind of want to look at people like mm-hmm. all of them and watch them fold their arms and cross their legs and do all the stuff. Right. So I, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, first of all, I'm going to commend Bert. I just talked to him last night. I'm going to, have to tell him again he did, he did a good job because I think there are people like Bert and like Joe who are so not seen mm. but present that when they offer you something, you have to think about it. It's like, you know, if Bert called me and said, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot and I, I really think you need to join the circus. I wouldn't just say no, right? At 70, I'd say, okay. I know we have this information, and I'm sorry, I forgot. What's Burt Burleson's name? Burt Burleson is a nine, and he is your dad. Mm -hmm. So is he the the nine that also agrees with traffic rules? Yes. The Reverend does? Okay. Yes. So are you referencing the nineness of Burt in that story? Because we say that about dad. Yeah. That when he speaks, you listen. And Bert's exactly the same okay. way. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, you know, he's got your back, but he never tells you. And you know, he's watching and you know, he cares. Well, and I'll give you a great story with that. Great. Excellent. So I go through waves of how active I am on social media and how critical I might be of certain institutions or topics or whatever. Uh, and I had been kind of hammering a, a particular group a little bit because of some of my disapproval, right? Cause I'm right. Cause I'm a yeah. one. Um, and I got a Facebook message from Bert <laughs> and he had taken a screenshot of something I said and he said, Hey, I'm going to be up in Dallas here in a week or two for this thing. You think you can make some time for me? We can grab lunch. We can talk a little bit. <laughs> and he, in ways that only Bert can, That's right. um, and I'm, I'm sure chose the same way. Uh, we had a really rich conversation and he helped me, uh, from a place of his strengths, uh, where I was probably in some low, low one energy, uh, on some things. Uh, and it was a really fruitful conversation and I don't know that I would have received it from anyone other than a, a Bert and a nine, uh, probably. And I mean, it, he, he gave me some in a Bert way, very stern correction and challenge and helped me see things from another perspective. Cause right. I was only locked into mine. Yeah, sure. Um, and it was, it was a really important informative conversation and it's really helped me. That was back in pre COVID last November, December. It seems like um, three years ago. I know, right. You can't keep track of time, but that's really helped me. And this challenging season we're in right now, it's we're heading up to election season and all yeah. that. And so that conversation with Bert 
has really helped me in my interactions in person, my interactions in the hospital room, interactions with family. Like I, I fall back to that conversation quite regularly and the impact that it had on me. Um, yeah, so it was just, it was one of those really important moments for me yeah. of late. Where I did a lot of growing and learning, I think. I have so many things to say. So the first thing I want to say is, Joel, we got to get in touch with Bert, and we've got to do a podcast with Bert and Dad. Yeah. Mm. So we got to do that. That'd be a good one. Second thing I want to say is that I'm particularly respectful and intrigued by your ability to do what Richard Rohr talks about when he says, the best protection from the next word of God is the last word of mm. God. Because you and your road to Reverend Doctor went through lots of words of what you were being called to mm -hmm. and how that evolved into another thing and another thing and another thing. And we've just come out of a conversation where we're talking, Joel and Joe and me, about evolving understanding of recovery mm -hmm. and, you know, how that might evolve. And I think there's a tendency in times of liminality when people who are risk averse mm -hmm. want to run back and let's just do things the way we used to do it because it worked and it was safe and nobody got hurt and everything was manageable. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are risk takers who are willing to run ahead, but they too often run ahead to create something new without preparing for it. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine, and I, I'm, I'm saying this carefully and respectfully because I don't know who's doing what in ministry and I, I don't know how it's going. So I'm not, I'm just talking about you and me. I'm not criticizing anybody else. Mm -hmm. I would think it would require a calling or two to get to a point where you could answer the question of who do I have the most to learn from mm -hmm. the way you answered and particularly as a woman, mm -hmm. you, you have as a child of God growing up in a church, a big potential embrace for everybody. And most ones kind of find a sweet spot with a group of people that's a little closer to the middle. Mm. So I think from my perspective, to be called to where you find yourself required your living through the previous calls, mm -hmm. thinking that was it, yeah. not thinking you were on your way to something else. Right. Right. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so I'm a pastor's kid to further muddy the waters and all that. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, a special oh, thing. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've grown up with all of that kind of tension and pressure and feeling like I've been on a pedestal. Um, but yeah, that evolving call or listening for the next uh, word of God, somewhere along uh, in the last few years, I, I stumbled across the, the UCC, the United Church of mm -hmm. Christ, and their statement that God is still speaking. Mm -hmm. And that's been really, really important to me um, in trying to discern all this, going through CPE residency and working through all of your stuff and trying to figure out what in the world are you bringing into the hospital room when you go see a patient. Um, and then um, I thought, you know, I was, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I was going to be the missions pastor, right? Sure. And then that changed. And then you know, Heather and I, when we were exploring marriage partnership, we never said like, who's going to be the stay at home parent. Yep. We've just kind of always said we were going to figure that out. And so I came out of residency and then we determined it would made the most sense for me to be the stay at home parent. That was not, that was not on my radar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so for the past like four and a half years, that's what I've been doing while working part-time as a chaplain, doing my doctoral work. Um, and then being home, uh, with my daughter, um, who's now five. And then my, my son who's 15 months, uh, for the first, you know, for the last four and a half years, I was the primary yeah. stay-at-home parent. And that was another nuance of that evolving kind of calling and word from God. And that was such a rich time for me and something I 
I wouldn't give up for anything and something I still grieve uh, a little bit too. Yeah. I love what I'm doing, working full time. Uh, now I'm in a really great spot with a really great team. Um, yeah, continuing to listen and trying to discern, is it the right time? Is it not the right time? When this job opportunity came up, I had so much anxiety and so much kind of guilt. And is my son going to be in therapy for years to come because I was home with my daughter, but I didn't stay home with him. And, you know, so I, I just had all that just weighing on me. Um, and just tried to figure out what's the next right thing. And Heather and I just said, "It, it seems like it's a really good spot. It's a really good fit. So let's go for it. And my current boss, I believe is nine on the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. He's a spiritual director and he has just been phenomenal. So I'm blessed with another Bert like figure in my life. And I, it's just so perfect. Uh, And he's just been so wonderful to me in my first five or six months uh, in this new position and what I'm doing. Uh, It's been really good. All right, let's bring it back because I have some juicy Enneagram questions. So we've mentioned Heather now a few times and not once said it's the Heather that was on the Path Between Us series. Uh, So Heather's a six. Yes. You're a one. Yes. Let's hear some backstory of your, let's hear the uh, timeline of Enneagram affection that you have. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I... The rebellion was 2012 or 13 in this very room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, well, it, it actually goes back a little bit further. Uh-huh. That just, I think, probably solidified. I'm going to continue go. to rebel. <laughs> so it was a, a little bit before that. It was probably like the fall of 2010, 2011, maybe. You were doing a Know Your Number workshop uh, down at Baylor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were not required, but strongly encouraged. And I don't like being required to do things. And Enneagram was kind of all the rage uh, at the time there. And so I was, my guard kind of naturally went up. And so I listened to 891 of the Know Your Number. And when I heard one, I was just like, nope, I feel ashamed. I feel found out. I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing this. And I literally just left. Um, I don't remember where I went or what I did, but I was just like, no, I'm done. I'm not buying into this. And then... That, I must have done an exceptionally good job that day. Oh, man. Hopefully my. it wasn't one of those days where you said, you know, if you don't like it, we'll refund your money and <laughs> you can leave. Yeah, well, spiritual life paid for it, but, man, I didn't care. <laughs> I, I bolted. <laughs> the first chance I had when I think you probably took a break after finishing the 891 group, I was mm-hmm. out and just had no interest to touch the Enneagram. Well, from my perspective, thank you for not leaving until the break. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that was my initial exposure. And then a little bit later coming here to the Micah center and some more exposure and just being really resistant to it. Um, so then we kind of left Waco and came up here to Dallas and Heather continued to stay engaged and find a lot of life in it and a lot of help and healing and language. And I was just really resistant and it actually kind of became a bit of a, like a point of tension in our marriage. Like she we didn't have this shared language. Um, and it was, yeah, it was kind of causing some tension. Uh, and with, I had a, a challenging situation with a, a former employer at work. I got not a bad performance review, but it was in the relational component. I, I really got kind of hammered and it was all around being in the low side of one. And I didn't know that at the time. Um, but I was, you know, I got feedback that I'm judgmental and I'm inflexible and I don't interact with people and just all kinds of, so I didn't have language for it then. And so I was just like scrambling to say, what am I going to do? And so my supervisor said, well, let's try to find something that can be a pathway to, to help you in this. And so I was like, all right, Heather talks about the Enneagram all the time. I'll, I'll tap back into that. And I was only at that time getting into doing it so I could just prove everybody else wrong, that it was everybody else's fault mm-hmm. <laughs> with stuff and that it really wasn't me. Um, but that was, that was my doorway back in. Uh, and then when our son uh, was born in uh, June of 2019, um, you've got all this time. And I think Heather tells this story on the podcast. You've got all this time. You're rocking babies at, you know, two o'clock in the morning. And so I just started binging on uh, your first podcast and then your current one. And I literally listened to every single episode and then went back and started again. And then I started like, reading the books that Heather already had. I was buying books and I was just devouring everything I could get my hands on. 
And it, it just, it gave Heather and I some shared language. Mm-hmm. I had so much insight into myself. Um, and I began to really see the challenge in relationships at work. Some of the people I was having, you know, conflict with or whatever family things. And it just, I don't know. It was like when you put on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden you can mm-hmm. see clearly for the first time, it was that kind of experience yeah. where I was just seeing the world in a whole new light and had all this language and framework. There are things I still struggle with and, and don't like. Um, orientation to time is one of those things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like that in relation to how I experience the world or whatever, but now how long can we talk about that some more? Yeah. Well, I just want to know how many years I have to win you over on that. Dude. Oh, the orientation of time. No, I'm, I'm open. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think, I think two things. I think there must be more work for me to do around how to talk about orientation of time in a way that people can relate to it better. So mm-hmm. I think part of that's on my side of the fence, but I, I think an important piece is to recognize that orientation of time is uh, a part of stances. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that I wouldn't think in your thinking that you and Heather and I are all in the dependent stance. As a one and a two and a six, we are dependent on how other people respond to us. Mm -hmm. So my lack of work probably lies in not connecting well enough how an orientation to the present moment connects to dependent. Mm. But that's the connection that I would encourage you to work with to make it more real for you. Because even though I feel sure you're really good about organization and having a plan and Mm -hmm. doing what you're going to do, be careful that giving that up is associated with your job and not with your personality Mm. when somebody's standing right in front of you and they want something. And when you get your, a part of your sense of who you are based on the feedback that you get from the people that you're with. Right. Right. Because that's where orientation of time is the most important. And language that I'm using now that I may not have been using when you heard me talk about it is I'm talking a lot about being tethered to the present or to the past or to the future. Mm -hmm. And I don't even understand Joel's understanding of his orientation of time. Like the other night I was teaching and he said, do you, do you understand that the present is right now? And I thought that the future is right now, the future. I mean, the future is right now. And I thought, no, no, (laughs) we didn't have, we didn't talk about it then, but I didn't really understand that. Here's what I know. The past and the future do not inform my life with nearly the same power Mm. as the present moment. Yeah, that's interesting. Coming out of this pandemic Mm -hmm. and what we have, all it has done is open up things to learn. That's all it's done. And so much of your work on the Enneagram has been about the most important parts of the core of the Enneagram, which is motivation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you teach it the best and so many things around that. And now we're learning, okay, f- for instance, not just to give another example, energy. Oh my gosh, the energy, where people get it from, what's taking it from us. That's a huge Enneagram question right now that is on the docket. Mm-hmm. And the other one is orientation to time. And we had that conversation the other night. That's just been a real big player in my personal life right now in my relationships. Because if nothing else, the Enneagram is about where are we disconnected from other people based on our Enneagram number. Mm -hmm. And the disconnect for me is orientation to time much of the time. And so what does that mean? So when you say a big piece of it, of your, did you say is your pushback or uh, yeah, that you were having a hard time? Pushback or struggle yeah. was the orientation of time. Ones are oriented to the present. Is your pushback that you're not, or that what? Yeah, no, that's that's good. Um, 
so a lot of it for me has to do with my own, you know, my, my inner voice, my inner critic. Um, and I feel like I'm constantly, I mean, I can go back to conversations in the past. And so I feel like that's a component of it. Uh, I do feel like I'm drawn back to the past a lot with conversations with my inner critic. And I can't then, remember what his name is. What is it? It's just Chad. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. I must be confu- conflating two stories. Sorry. Yeah. No, my, I mean, my inner critic. Yours I mean, is Chad. It like, is Chad. You named I mean, it you because like, it's you. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I remember like reading that now. Like yeah. playing baseball, you know, making a mistake. The plays at second, but I threw to third. Come on, Chad. What are you doing? You know where to throw the ball. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that is my inner dialogue. I mean, that was seven, eight years old saying that to myself. Real quick question. Been, yes. I'm so sorry. Does Chad ever say baseball? Way to go, Chad. Is there positive there? Because I, my, I'm a seven. I don't have an inner critic. I share a line with one. And I, my self-talk is Joel. That's how my self-talk goes, especially around competitive things. <sighs> Joel, come, Joel, you knew better right there. Joel, you could have done better. And because I'm a seven, it's also boy, Joel. <laughs> Way to go there, Joel. <laughs> I asked just because you named it Chad. Yeah, I don't know that that whole inner dialogue with myself, I get much positive feedback. Ah, it's such a bummer. I know. Um, as I'm learning to get more and more into what Heather calls vacation Chad, yeah. uh, that's when I'm, I'm sliding into that seven energy. Uh, vacation Chad or weekend Chad, and she's like, oh, mm-hmm. there he is, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, can, I can tap more into that, you know, and, you know, I can be like, man, I... I really rocked dinner tonight or, you know, I really feel like I'm a really good chaplain. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. despite all that we're juggling right now, I feel like I was really present as a father and I'm proud of that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I, I, I get some of that, but it, it's not really so much my inner critic. I think it's. It's you. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's part of that authentic. Yeah. It's productive thing thinking. Yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. That's where. Honest. Vacation chat is right. productive thinking. Way to go, man. This. Yeah. You did it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my other pushbacks is the, the non-productive thinking Mm -hmm. because I want to be like, no, I'm a thinker. I think all the time, like Mm -hmm. it's never stopped, but having that language of unproductive thinking or non-productive thinking, that was a game changer for me as well. It's one I'm still like working on and trying to wrap my mind around too. But having that language was really helpful when I began to dig into that some more. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was highly offended when I found out I was thinking repressed. (laughs) You know, yeah, and I, um, I sometimes kind of try to talk value into unproductive thinking. On you know, when mm-hmm. I, I get all up in worrying about stuff that's not mine to worry about, and worrying about stuff that I'm sure my children are handling just fine, and then I think, well, I need to do that. They wouldn't be the children, the adults they are, if I hadn't. Like I can do a little thing with me. If somebody wants to. Get a little bit more teaching on unproductive thinking for mm-hmm. twos. Mm-hmm. Notice how your examples are unproductive thinking about your relationships. Always. You have it, but that's my point. That's you didn't that, name unproductive thinking about a different topic. Nope. Always. You didn't have about unproductive thinking about your book. Nope. Or whatever else it may be. It is about relationships one hundred percent of the time. It just feels justified sometimes. Mm-hmm. I can get that. If y'all had an unproductive thinking support group, how would y'all, you know, talk about that? The two of you. I mean, I'm not a part of this group. It's a closed meeting. Pretend <laughs> I'm not here. I don't know. I mean, I, I resonate with what Suzanne is saying. Both of my parents are twos uh, and highly relational and I think a lot of ways similar to you. And uh, so I've, you know, seen that my whole life and seen the way they stress about things, the way they're currently stressing about certain things. Uh, and our family dynamics and other relationships. So, yeah, I can I can see the, all that for sure. It's interesting to me because I think you have found a spot in a wider professional field mm-hmm. of hospital chaplaincy to perhaps need at times affirmation that nobody can give you because they don't understand what you're dealing with. And I can imagine you being able to give affirmation because you're dealing with something that other people don't understand and yet you know how to be present to it as a chaplain. 
And that whole array is productive thinking that has to be outside of the chatter that's everywhere about the queer community, much less about the transgender community. Right. Right. And it makes my heart happy that an Enneagram One is a chaplain interested in the transgender community because that's who, that's who it needs to be. Mm. It needs to be somebody who works to get all of the language right. And mm-hmm. the it has to be right or it's not respectful. Right. And there would be a tendency in other numbers, my number, there, I'll just talk about me. There would be a tendency in my number to think that loving you could cover for me not knowing appropriate language for talking to you. Mm. And a one wouldn't take that out. My heart is just very happy Mm. that you found yourself in that niche. And my heart is very happy that with the compassion that that has to require, other people at the hospital get it too. Mm. I like it all. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a neat space to get to hold uh, with people, but you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I mentioned my ministry project earlier and like the first chapter was all about defining terms and right. the language and here's the spectrum of things and here's what I mean, but here's ways I learned based on the interviews I did with uh, these uh, transgender, transgender individuals, you know, where they pushed back against the language I was using and then I had to go back and right. adjust it where I thought I had it right. And they were like, uh, you know, well, I'm going to push back against that. And it, it, it took me some time to go back and have to edit a lot of stuff, but I mm-hmm. wanted to wanted to get it right because it's such it's such an important component of I think showing that I care and that I'm with you and that I'm for you is using the right language and, and terminology and right. such. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's so easy to say, isn't it, these mm-hmm. days? Well, I don't understand. Yeah. I, I accept you, but I don't understand. Right. That doesn't cut it. No. It's, that's not okay. Well, and uh, along with that, and it's such an important thing as well, is our intent. You know, we often say, oh, I didn't intend to offend you. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But intent does not excuse impact. No. And so that's why for me, language was so important that my intent wasn't to use outdated terminology or whatever the case may be. Uh, but that doesn't excuse impact when I get it wrong and that I have to own it. Yeah. Uh, whether we're talking about the transgender community or race relations and how sure. we talk about our, you know, black and brown uh, siblings, you know, any any of that, um, you know, when we when we mess it up and we do mess it up, we have to own it. Yeah. But it's not just owning it, but it's it's the change to say I'm going to work really really hard not to make that mistake again. And if I do, call me out on it yeah. again, yeah. and I'm going to work to get it right. Um, so yeah. It's interesting to be 70 and need to learn so much. Mm. I need to learn so much. And the thing that I've said for years and years that is my pet peeve is old people who say, well, I'm just too old to change Mm. or I'm too old to learn anything new. Well, then stay home. Like that, (laughs) that's my answer to me. Mm. Stay home if you don't want to learn it. Right. Yeah. Can I ask a question real fast before we get away from yeah. the repressed center of thinking? Mm-hmm. So first of all, I want to give a few pats on a few pats on the back before a question. And that is, Mom, you talking about, Chad, you professionally, that the thinking is there. You're like, man, I'm bringing it to the table. It is important. And this is an important issue. And, and, and. And part of this, now as I'm thinking about my other two examples, they're both in the gut triad. So there's that little caveat. In our shout out to my Enneagram curriculum group, our Zoom group, one is a parent who their primary job is the schooling and they're like, and they're nine. And they're doing is very, the verbiage in the curriculum Mm -hmm. is intentional. So for three, six, and nine, intentional versus unintentional. Mm -hmm. The repressed is unintentional and the dominant is intentional. And she talked about how she, in regards to being a parent, it is all intentional. She does with intentionality and outside of that, not so much. 
And then the other shout out and pat on the back is to my wife, Whitney, who's a one who's a therapist who does a lot of great work with women and with people with uh, eating disorders. And now she's trying to bring in uh, people of color and bring some equality to feminism. And she's doing the research and the work around feminism and how that has left out people of color. Mm-hmm. So I see in all those three, the intentional thinking, and I loved that. And that's what everyone, by the way, the 26 people in our group loved that verbiage of intentional doing, intentional thinking, intentional feeling. Now, my question is on the other side, what does repressed thinking look like to you? Well, how does that show up? Mm. What is unintentional thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. In the context of my my work as a chaplain is it's disconnecting from the present moment and the interaction, the face-to-face, uh, and trying to think about all the things I need to say or I should say or this is the resource I need to recommend. And it so I start thinking about all the things I can help them with uh, as a fixer and a doer. And and so I, 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 I lose it. And then it, it really then becomes about my need to be helpful and my need to be a good chaplain mm-hmm. and for them to hopefully walk away saying, man, that chaplain gave me a really great book recommendation or whatever the case may be. That's, that's where it gets unproductive because that stuff is there and there will be a place for that. But when I allow that to start spiraling and I lose the present moment yep. uh, with them, that's what the unproductive thinking looks like. So being distracted. Yeah. I mean, like it, it's a distraction, distracted. but, but I'm fooling myself saying it, this is a good thing, right? right? Because I'm coming up with all these great solutions for this person, yeah. right? But it, it's distracted because then I'm not there and I'm missing the things that they're saying because then I'm thinking, well, I need to find out this, I need to ask this question. It's not important where they go to church or, you know, but it, it makes me feel really good that I'm getting more information and I can leave a really great chart note and all these things, but I'm, I'm missing what the person is offering mm-hmm. right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's where the unpredictive thinking really gets me. Yeah, fixing fixing there's an inclination to do the right thing Mm -hmm. to get the right outcome yeah and knowing how to do that so it's just whether or not they're ready for that is the way that would fit for every number is you get distracted by your core motivation of course Mm -hmm. so right there it was distracted by that sevens you know we never get to feeling distracted by avoiding pain yep nines distracted by Eight's distracted by, and so on. So it's, you get distracted from your repressed center. And then you follow what you're focused on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you can't refocus yourself, then you're down the line before you know, looking back, that you should have, could have done it differently. And then what you focused on determines what you missed. That's right. Behind you. Every Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found intriguing in my connections to you and Heather over the years mm-hmm. was your partnership. Because often people who talk about, who are married, who are talking about being partners, they don't talk about being married. They talk about being partners. You two talk about both. Mm-hmm. And I like that a lot. And I am an observer out here from uh, looking in at all the creative ways that you have figured out how to make life work for first just you two and Jimmy and now adding Bly. Does this same model of intentionality play out the same way at home? Or is it a different look in terms of what slips or what you get distracted by? No, I mean, it, I, I think we, we carry it over pretty well uh, into our home life. We're very much shared in all the, the daily response, uh, runs, responsibilities of kind of running a house, so to speak. Uh, I'm a morning person. I typically get up at like 4 a.m., uh, so I can like get my coffee, scroll the news, do that for the first 30 minutes of my morning. Then I roll into doing some reading and then I run 
or write or whatever I need to do with that next hour. And then it's shower. And then I get the kids up. I get breakfast started, pack lunches for the day, whatever the case may be. And then uh, Heather, Heather gets up. So that's kind of always one of our running jokes of I've done all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's just like rolling out of bed, you know, <laughs> that's one of our running jokes uh, in our family. Um, but that's part of what we both need. And we've recognized that. And I used to be resentful, but now I understand that she's getting what she needs mm-hmm. and I'm getting what I need to then be able to relax and such uh, and have more space. So I know that sounds weird. I do no, it does work. not sound weird at all. And it sounds, uh, but, but it's very one. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people can't roll off a morning routine that's the same every morning Mm -hmm. that has time tied to it. Yeah. And I, my big question is, and then we'll talk about y'all being a one and a six, but my big question is, do you think that your approach as a couple has to do with the fact that you adopted the language that we're going to be partners Mm -hmm. instead of falling into roles that are already there. And the reason I'm asking that question is because it would be a safe journey for a one and a six, a male one and a female six to fall into traditional Mm -hmm. roles and feel like that was the right, correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. How did you get outside the box thinking around partnering? Yeah. I don't know that I could really point to like a specific thing or conversation or, or anything like that. Um, we were around some great, uh, couples at Baylor that had kind of a, a less traditional or a non-traditional approach where both were professionals and both worked and raised kids and, Mm -hmm. and juggling all that. So it, you know, it could be some of that. I don't know for us, it just, I mean, we both grew up in fairly traditional, you know, Mm -hmm. models, Mm -hmm. uh, Heather's in a blended family. Uh, so that looked a little bit different with a mom who worked, you know, super, super hard did night school, all that stuff. You know, I come from a pastor's kid family. So my mom was the ideal to pastor's wife. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I'm not just for the record. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so what, <laughs> sorry, that yeah. was awkward. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We know Suzanne. Unlike yeah. you, Suzanne, my mom was the yeah. ideal to pastor's wife. Yeah. But so that, I mean, but that was my framework and, and what I knew. Um, but I didn't, I mean, I can remember as a kid, not always liking that though. And remembering like, that doesn't feel very fair that that's the model it has to be. Like I have distinct memories and that's part of my role in, in our family as well. Uh, when you start talking like family systems theory, yeah, I was yeah. the fixer and the doer. And when fights occurred or whatever, like I would, I would come in and clean the kitchen or I would, you know, yep. I would go between mom and dad and make sure everybody's okay and help calm everything down. I'd take the kid, you know, my siblings for a walk, get them out of the house so they could mm-hmm. finish their business, you know, whatever. And so I mean, my parents are wonderful. I'm not bashing them in sure. any way, sure. but just seeing things and saying, I wonder if there's a different way. That does it have to be like that, or is there a, a different model for things? And then Heather and I, we had a very non-traditional dating experience, yep. um, and so just non-traditional has just, I think, been the thread maybe a little bit. Um, you know, going back to grad school, being married, you know, in our mid to late twenties, that was you know a bit different. Um, you know, neither one of us had like an actual salary till like we were in our thirties. You know, so we were like poor driving one car, you know, all this stuff. So we just had this non-traditional way. And so that just became the rhythm. So then when it came to, well, technically your job pays more than mine and yours provides insurance and mine doesn't. So it makes sense for you to work and for me to stay home. And yep. so that's just kind of what we did. But when I mean, we didn't have a time frame, we didn't know if it would be a year or two years or ended up being about four and a half. We just were always trying to figure out what's kind of the next right thing. There it is right there. That's what I'm looking for. Because, you know, if somebody said, tell me the two numbers on the Enneagram that are the less like the least likely to operate outside the box, it would be one in six. Mm. And y'all do it almost intuitively. Yeah. So what I was looking for was permission for other ones and sixes to trust their intuition Mm -hmm. to to make decisions to make bigger decisions in a smaller circle from an intuitive space. Yeah. I have so many questions about intuition. 
<laughs> and gut. Because I, first of all, could not be a bigger advocate for non-traditional thinking and doing. And I'm super happy for people that tradition works. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think there's room for both. Yeah. But you have to be able to think outside the box to know that there's room for both. Mm -hmm. And for you and I, Joel, to be sitting listening to so much outside of the box thinking between a marriage partnership that include a one and a six. And I'm curious because if someone were, again, anyone, any anagram number can do anything. I would think if someone were like, how do you think this came to be? You've used the word fair like three times mm -hmm. in this in this chat today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And other numbers don't. And that that's my point is that that's something that you, they, you bring to the table. What's fair? What is just? How should, again, we talk about the negative aspect of using shoulds and mm -hmm, oughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the positive. What should we do That's right. as yeah. a partnership? Mm -hmm. You know, Heather, uh, she's incredibly talented, really bright. She's a gifted minister, highly educated. She's got two master's degrees. She has her master of divinity and her master in social work. She's a licensed social worker. And so, like, there's no way. <laughs> we just finished paying off her student loans uh, recently. Congratulations. Like, yeah. We still, have, we still have my master's. We're online uh, to knock my uh, unfinished bachelor degree out in 2075. <laughs> so, yeah. They're awful. They're awful. So, again, when you talk about what's fair, like, she, she has put in the work. She has put in the time. Why should she not have an opportunity to practice in a field that she is gifted in and called in and all those things? And so... There was never there was never a conversation of you just have to put your dreams on hold, but it was just this give and take. Yep. And she would love to probably do some doctoral work at some point down the road. It just made sense for me to do it first because we decided I would stay home and the way the program was designed enabled that, you know. And so, again, it wasn't part of some master plan that we had. It was just figuring out what's the next right thing. And that just is what happened to be before us. And, and that's just kind of how we do life. What's the next the next step because if we both get too stressed if we think too big picture sure you know and as you know with sixes i mean heather heather is the person you want on the desert island with you absolutely because absolutely. she has planned she's got the bag packed she's got all the gear you know like you i think she and uh craig nash talked about that on yeah. uh, one of your um panel discussions like you, you want a six conversation, eh? episodes 83 and 84 yeah you you want a six with you you know and so Heather's great, and we just we complement each other really well uh, in that. And so, I um, also would suggest Joel that one of the answers to that question for a one and a six would be that a one is looking for justice, which was obvious, mm -hmm. but a six asks very hard questions. Yes, and if they're taken seriously. They can change the course of where people are headed. Mm -hmm. the, that's where the rubber meets the road for sixes. You know, sometimes when I'm teaching, I, I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but sometimes when I'm teaching and it's been a long day and I've answered lots of questions and I'm tired and the six raises their hand, I think, man, I'm not going to be able to slide on this one. Yeah. Because that's the kind of questions they ask. Yeah. Heather asks really good questions and sometimes they make people uncomfortable. Yeah. And that kind of comes back to bite her, but it's, that's their deal. It's not hers. Right. Yep. But Heather asks really good questions. Yep. Like we're in the process of trying to sell our house and we're buying a new one. And she is the person you want and asking all the right questions on the sale and on the house we're buying. You know, she asked phenomenal questions today to make sure we are getting the right information. So we know what to do so that we have a plan so that we don't lose our buyer because of the things we need to have repaired, you know, and, and that's just, that's the giftedness of Heather. Um, okay, here's my next question. I'm going to lean in for this. All right. <laughs> Does Chad, the critic, stand down because of the trust of the relationship between you and Heather? Or does Chad, the critic, say when Heather brings up something you didn't think of, Chad, you should have thought of that? Mm. It depends on the space and energy I'm in. If I'm in, you know average to high one space, 
I can receive that with gratitude being like, Mm -hmm. man, Heather just saved my bacon on that one Mm -hmm. because she asked the right question or she had the insight or whatever the case may be. If we've, you know, been in a season where there's been some tension and, you know, fighting or whatever, and that happens, I get really resentful and bitter and I want to prove her wrong and I'm just not going to have it. And she's not going to talk to me that way. And that's where I slide into the traditional, I'm the man. I should be right. I haven't done any of the research. Heather has, so she should know, you know, Yeah. but I get into that space. And so it depends on where I'm at. And that's been another really helpful thing on the, the high and the low side of the numbers yeah. and what I need from all of that. You know, when I slide into four, the, the good things I can pull from the high side of four. When I slide into seven, the good things, because I can just as easily pull some of the the negative or low side Absolutely. things as well. And that, that awareness, and I feel like a lot of teachers are talking about that right now, mm-hmm. is really, really helpful. Talking about the high and the low side versus just you go to four and, you know, yep. four and stress and seven and strength or growth or security, whatever the case may be. I don't, I'm not finding work. that as helpful any longer. No. But realizing that I need the energy from both of those numbers and having that awareness to say, man, am I in some low four right now? And why is that? Mm-hmm. And what do I need to do to get to a different space, a different yep. energy has been really, really helpful for me. So I like the way you're talking about that and other teachers are doing that too. And I find that really, really helpful. I always, when we find this wonderful thing that's working, think we owe it to all the other people who are your numbers to always tip our hat to, and what about when it doesn't work? Because <laughs> it always yeah. doesn't, right. you know. This weekend, Suzanne had a uh, Enneagram and Relationships workshop. Mm-hmm. And one of the social media posts that went up, uh, it says, it's a picture, and the caption is, Enneagram ones and sixes in relationship. What could go wrong with what is going wrong? Can you talk to the high side and low side of that in y'all's relationship? Yeah. When it, when it's not working, I've just moved right into fixing. So like, tell me what's wrong so I can fix it. Uh-huh. And when we're in that low space energy, that just doesn't work because Heather just needs to be heard and she just needs to be able to talk it out. And mm-hmm. she needs to run the whole course of, she needs the worst case scenario plan this thing to the end and how that's going to end up. And I'm just like, no, I just want to fix it. So tell me what I need to do. Tell me where, you know, do I need to run to the store and get this thing? Mm -hmm. Just let me do it so I can fix it and we can be done with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when, that's when it's not working for us. And, you know, and then she, she gets frustrated because, you know, she's not feeling heard. And then I'm feeling shame because I'm being a bad spouse because I'm not hearing her. Mm -hmm. And we just start spiraling. uh, Yeah. We have the same spiral at our house with two different numbers. Yeah. Yeah, I say, do I need to call the church and make an appointment to be heard? Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Yeah. We behave badly, don't we? I was say, that would send me over. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, man, call the Mike Center. Cindy will give me the message. I'll tell her what to do with it. Yeah. What about, here's two questions. Have we had a one and a six? I mean, technically we've had... Together? Have we had them together? No, but like we've had Heather. I'm trying to think of other guests that we know they're partners or spouses. I don't think we have. All right. And then the second one is two dependent stance outside of one and one. Christopher and Amanda. Christopher and Amanda. Have we had anybody else? I'll talk my head no. Talk my head no. Yeah. Parenting. Yeah. Because we have had other uh, people in the same stance. And people in the same triad. But I can't think, like we just said, I can't think of the same stance that have been the dependent stance. First of all, what as parents is a like a, a benefit, a strength that y'all have being in the same stance? Mm. And then what is something that you have to collectively look outside of yourselves for uh, in regards to parenting a five-year-old and a 15-month-old? Yeah, good question. Um, so I know we're not supposed to name the number for our kids. Um, we have some leanings, you know, everyone does. Hey man, yeah. That, yeah, just as go long right as on you qualify there. it, you're good immediately yeah, after that. that you have that. to say, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, but this is a, a shocker, I'm sure. But, uh, we're pretty sure my daughter, Jimmy, she's a five that she's probably a one. I can't imagine why with, uh, the influence in her life. How yes. could she be? Um, <laughs> 
So we're pretty sure she's a one. And then our son, Bly, you know, he's 15 months. We're, we're pretty sure he's a withdrawing stance for sure, just on his personality. And he's hugely observant. Like he loves to just sit back and watch whether it's Jimmy or we've started going to parks a little bit when we feel safe and it's not that crowded and stuff. And he just sits back and watches and observes. Um, he's got, he's got a lot of feelings and a lot of emotion, how it pertains to, to parenting. Um, so I, I want to speak for a minute before you answer that. Yeah. Cause there's a wide range of what parenting means. Mm -hmm. And because you and I are, Friends on social media, I know what kind of parenting you've done as a dad mm. with Jimmy. So it isn't, we're home and I'm working on my doctorate and Jimmy's playing. It's the zoo, the park, cooking, going to the swimming pool. Like you're hands-on doing a good deal of parenting. No, oh, thanks. So tipping my hat to that and saying I, I just want to set the table with you have had space to spend a lot of time with her. Mm -hmm. And then I want you to answer the question because not everybody who's a one has that kind of space. And I don't want them to feel, you know, I don't want their voices to get them. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I recognize I had a really unique gift for that four and a half years yeah. to, you know, so we went to the zoo every Monday. I yep. mean, we had our, our I went with you. I know. Yeah. You know <laughs> I watched every, her grow Every Wednesday zoo. was, you know, the library and uh, music time, yeah. you know, story time at the library. But within that was like structure and routine, which sure. I thrive in. Right. Um, and that was helpful. Okay. So that that's key because a one parent, I don't think, can thrive outside of structure and routine. Yeah. And parenting. I just don't think you can. Mm-hmm. I've been teaching that Chad critic, critic Chad, mm -hmm. can't be as present in relationship to feelings as activity. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Like, I'm asking, do you get to feel whatever you want to without critic Chad chiming in? But if you do things, does critic Chad chime in more? And then I want to ask if that's different in parenting and in the rest of your life. Yeah, I'm trying to do a, a lot of work around feeling mm -hmm. right now. Um, we all are, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you that the space that has helped me the most is in my, in my new job. Uh, I started it in a number of months back. Uh, part of my assignment is working in the NICU. Yep. And uh, when we were pregnant and stuff, like I just dreaded my work that I had to do because it was all bad situations, you know, fetal demise and stuff. Um, now I'm in a different space uh, with our kids and the NICU has been one of my greatest teachers working with the families and stuff there. And it's helped me tap into the feeling side. Uh, and so it's, it's opened up this tenderness that is really new and really raw in the NICU and families I'm journeying with over weeks and months. Um, so there's a real tenderness to that. Um, and it's not just because I'm a parent. It's not necessarily that. My colleague, uh, she does not have kids, and she does phenomenal work in the NICU uh, as well. But that tenderness in that space, I think, is helping inform, and I'm able to bring some of that tenderness home um, to where I'm not just what's fair and just and right and all that stuff in, in the house I'm, I'm working on it. I'm not, I'm not where I want to be mm -hmm. there. Uh, you know, with my time being more limited, I, I hate when I get home and like discipline is the thing mm -hmm. that's needed where Heather's just kind of like, she's done. It's mm -hmm. been a long day. She's been trying to work full time from home, manage the kids, manage the home repairs. And I, I really hate when that has to be, I come home and I have to have that talk with mm -hmm. Jimmy and we're trying to figure out what discipline and consequences work for her. And she's a really bright kid and she's a really great arguer and she can make some really good points. Uh, <laughs> and she can call out my stuff sometimes. And, uh, yeah, how that, how the critic plays into all that. Um, 
I don't know so much about the, the feeling uh, aspect, but again, the, the critic really gets me. And it's like, man, your kid is going to need so much therapy or you really screwed that one up or you should have handled that different or Jimmy's going to remember that one for a long time, just like you remember mm-hmm. from your childhood. And that's where the critic really gets me. And that's where Heather and I and some of those non-traditional ways or whatever are really trying to own where we make mistakes. And so we go back and we apologize to Jimmy a good bit. Sure. We to did say too. our response here, uh, that wasn't right. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have raised my voice like that. Or I reacted too sternly when I took away this thing or gave you this consequence or whatever. And we're, we're trying to own all that in our parenting. Yeah. Um, we read all the parenting books and stuff and it, it helps some, but again, it's coming back. What's the next right thing? And we haven't figured out what the right model is or whatever, uh, for Jimmy, but we're, we're figuring it out as we go. And some days Heather's the disciplinarian and some days, you know, I am, and sometimes it's together and, you know, some days neither one of us want to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm trying to bring that tenderness, more of that tenderness into those harder, harder parenting moments. I can be mm-hmm. tender when we're having fun and these are memories I'm going to cherish forever. And we're at the zoo and Jimmy tells me she's going to love this day forever. Or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm the best dad ever because I did whatever. Um, but in those hard moments, tapping into that tenderness as well, uh, is the, the space I'm working on trying to grow in, I think. Well, I got to say, um, I'm a big fan of both of you, but I also want to say, I, uh, think there were lots of opportunities in our conversation for you to be much less vulnerable and I would have gone with it. So thank you for being for choosing to be vulnerable about oneness and choices and about things that it's easy for other people to idealize, not being ideal. It's just process. Mm -hmm. It's just all the next right thing. Yeah. Yeah. All good. All good. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for allowing me to have this conversation. We'll do it again. Yeah. I would like that. Me too.